Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please join me in welcoming Donald Ritchie. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Can you talk about how these films came about um, and also what the Japanese reaction to the films was? Uh, during the war, I was, um, that's the Second World War, I was in the Merchant Marine, I was in the Maritime Service, and uh, that had helped get me out of Ohio, which is where I was born. And after the war, uh, the prospects of going anyplace else were very slight. And I certainly didn't want to go back to Ohio, so I heard that they were recruiting people for the occupied areas, uh, Germany and Japan. I've been to Europe, and I liked it, and I wanted to go back. And so I put down Germany, and they, in their wisdom, sent me to Japan. <laughs> and uh, I don't think I'd been there a week or two, so I realized it was so completely different from anything I'd ever imagined that I just wanted to stay and learn for the rest of my life. The films came about because a lot of people in my generation, I don't know about this generation, but in my generation, uh, the movies were sort of the thing we did when we were little, particularly me, because I was very often, when I was three or four, sent to the, th you know, to the movies to be kept quiet. And uh, I would sit there mesmerized. I had no idea what was coming next or who they were or what they were doing. The fact that it was moving was enough. So I became a sort of a charter member of the movie generation, and uh, went to see you know everything uh, that that played in this little town that I was born in. The the movies became my reality. Uh, the people I saw became more real than my family. Johnny Weissmiller was a lot more real than my father was, and when Norma Shearer wept, I cried along as I never did when my mother cried, and so this became my preferred reality. And so this continued on, and then one day I finally discovered what movies were doing. I walked into the Sigma Theater in Lima, Ohio, and I again paid no attention to what was on the marquee at all. I never looked at what was playing. It wasn't important. And I went in, and I thought, something's the matter. It's probably the projectionist is drunk again, because it first started with the end of the picture. The old man in the bed died. And then all of a sudden came the newsreel. And then after that, it picked up, and it kept jumping back and forth, and I was certain that the reels were utterly mixed up until it all began to make a kind of sense. And by the end of the film, I knew what film was, and I almost knew what life was. The film was Citizen Kane. And this inspired me so much. I'd only been a passive observer of the film. Now I wanted to be active. I badgered my father to getting me an 8-millimeter camera, and I was, how old was I, 17? The next day I was out, you know, I invented the documentary. I'd never heard of a documentary, but I took the camera and went around and took pictures of people going in and out of churches and called it Small Town Sunday. And I, I was enthused, you know, film, living through film, but uh, consciously this time. That was the beginning, and that has continued now for 82 years, and uh, this is the way that I am now. To answer the second part of the question, I came at a time in Japan when, when movies, uh, when that generation was also being uh, inundated with movies. At this point, Japan had been uh, bombed, almost out of existence. The people were very, very poor. They'd almost had a famine the year before I got there. 
And the only kind of uh, recreation that they could afford was the movies. So no matter what was playing or where it was playing, you had to fight your way into the theaters and stand in the back. Nobody ever got a seat. So the movies were doing for that generation what they'd done for me in my childhood. They were becoming a new kind of reality. So with that sort of voracious uh, audience uh, to see films with, it wasn't long before I got ideas of making films. Actually, I didn't have the means to do this until the I was making 8 millimeters, and then I got a Bolex in the early 60s, and these are all 16 millimeter. And so I was able to do this, and there was a, a student audience. Uh, there was a lot of ferment at that point, philosophical as well as political, about people wondering, you know, what life was all about anyway, and criticizing their government and criticizing our government. And it was sort of like the 60s in Europe or here. And so uh, they were very interested in the kind of dissident uh, satirical talk that I had to say. And so my films, uh, they say, had some sort of influence. In the past, when you've described um, your position in Japan, you've described it as a social unit of one. You've said that you were looking down from a mountain top and that you had the best seat in the house looking at Japanese culture. Can you discuss that and also talk about whether there's a filmmaker who embodies that perspective? Uh, yeah, I think one of the, the joys of being an expatriate is the complete freedom that it gives you, particularly in Japan, where uh, foreigners are held in a separate box, as it were, a separate category, where what applies to the Japanese do not necessarily apply to the foreigners. And so the, the specialness gives you a kind of a freedom. It doesn't give you license. It doesn't mean you can just do anything you like then, but it makes you aware in a very strange kind of way, and it prevents your having any of the comforts, or the comforts of belonging to any category. What she was quoting was something at the end of one of my books, which says that I'm like on a mountaintop where I can look back to the plains of the snowbound province of Ohio, where I came from, and those, it, it doesn't have any hold on me. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't form me. It has formed me, but it doesn't have anything to do with my life right now. Then I can look down in the sunny valley of the land I've chosen and know that I can never go down there. Uh, you know, I can look at it. And I can, you know, I can take strolls, but it's, I'm never going to belong to it, or to me. And so this gives me all of a sudden a kind of freedom I didn't have before. I become a citizen of limbo, and limbo is the most democratic state that there is. There are directors that embody that position of looking down from a mountain. I can't think of any Japanese that do this, because Japanese society is very, very strong and will not allow the kind of freedom that a foreigner can achieve, uh, unless, of course, a foreigner goes and lives abroad. Uh, but usually when this happens, like when Natsume Soseki, the great writer, went to London, they become miserable. Or when Leonard Fujita, the great painter, went to Paris, he, he was okay for a while, but then he became miserable. A lot of people travel abroad, and they all of a sudden they can't live without having miso shiru, which is a kind of miso soup that everybody eats. And I'm sure there are many Americans who go to Europe and say, oh, gee, I wish I had a ham sandwich, or where's mom's apple pie, or something like that. Uh, so it takes a, a rare Japanese, one who's left the country, and uh, Okakura Kakuzo, the man who lived in Boston for so long, would be an example of the man who found freedom this way. Uh, they're rather, well, they're rather rare, actually. It depends, it, it depends upon circumstances. I cannot think of a film director. At one point, you also were a film curator at the Museum of Modern Art. Can you tell us um, about 
series that you worked on there? Well, when you're back then, when you were cured of film at uh, MoMA, it was like Charles Foster Kane says, the biggest toy train a boy ever had. Uh, it was wonderful. It was the uh, late 60s, early 70s. There was a big voracious crowd waiting to be sort of educated and shown things. I was very happy to have given probably the greatest director of all, Robert Bresson, his first retrospective in America. And I was also honored to give the first retrospective to Stan Breakage. Uh, I was able to bring together the films and the director of Sajai Rai, or of James Lester Petty's, which people don't know anymore, but he's a very great director from uh, Sri Lanka. So we were able to do that sort of thing, and I was very pleased and proud that I had the opportunity to do this. Wearing so many different hats, being a scholar, being a critic, being a filmmaker, um, being a curator, did you feel that when you moved into a different genre that you were taking a risk um, to the position that you'd already established? Maybe. Uh, I do know that the way that I've arranged my work is so that uh, I can have the illusion of having taken a rest. I mean, I'm, I come from a very Protestant background, you know, despite all the, the glamour of Japan. And so I'm, I'm, I'm a workaholic, obviously. And uh, how to do this, you know, when work is in itself, as the Bible tells us, not very pleasant. Uh, the way that I do it is arrange it in, uh, what, like a menu. I have to work. If I don't, if I don't do my proper work, by which I mean, my writing and things like this, then I can't enjoy the rest of the day very much. And I certainly, if I prowl around at night, I don't enjoy that because I didn't earn it. Uh, so what I do is I will arrange the night before, which do you want to work on, A, B, C, or D? And I have three or four manuscripts going at once. I've got the column. I got a column every week in Japan Times. I could do that. I got a new book on aesthetics. I can do that. I'm, I'm redoing a book that has been published in Japanese called Viewing Film, but never been published in English, and so I'm going to work on that. And then I've got my journals, which I still keep up. All of this is work. My correspondence is not work. Correspondence is a deadly enemy of all work, as all of you who subscribe to email already know. Uh, so that's not included. But the other things, A, B, C, D, I can choose, and this keeps the impulse fresh. If, uh, if you're working, if you, if you have to work, if you're as, as, uh, as neurotic about it as I am, then this is one way to cope with it. Can you talk a little bit about the process of your writing? I think everybody has pretty much the same process. Uh, but it depends on what you're doing. You know, If you're doing critical work, the only thing you can do is look at the object again and again and again until you've memorized it to the extent that you've internalized it. And when you've done that, then you can start to do work on that object. I think that's the only way that a critic can, can work. He has to know that much if he's going to be any good. The reason I made these films, <coughs> despite the fact that they're fun, you know, is that uh, I felt that any critic, and I was a film critic, should know how to make what he's criticizing. I think that a music critic ought to know how to play some instruments. This is what Paul Hindemith thought, and he was absolutely right. Uh, an art critic ought to know how to paint. And a literary critic should always have written a book or two. And since I was in films, I wanted to know what it was like to actually go through the process. And this probably is one of the impulses uh, behind my doing this. Um, how else do you approach your work? 
There's other ways. I mean, if you're writing a novel, of course, it's completely different. Then you're looking into a void and trying to find a piece of string to pull and hoping something's at the It's like fishing to see what's on the other hand, what, what the association is, what comes up. Uh, you throw the bucket in the well and are surprised, pleased, horrified at what the bucket brings up. There are different methods. I recently watched the DVD of Rashomon, um, which is a wonderful Criterion DVD on which he did the commentary track. And there were two things that, that stood out to me maybe you could comment on. One, about how the actors, in particular Toshiro Mufune, he he's sort of impersonating an animal at one point. And I thought that was a really interesting description. I wonder if you could talk about that. Actually, when uh, Mifune, uh, when we hear about his impersonating the animal, this is all Kurosawa's doing. Uh, he has various ways of, had various ways of controlling his actors. And when he has a group as tight as he did, and this is, you know, 1950, making movies was sort of like a cottage industry. Everybody knew everybody else, and very tight little units. And they were all living in the same inn down near the forest where they took Rashomon near Nara. And so he was able to uh, sort of mold them. I mean, they took their meals together, they slept together in different rooms, I presume. But, you know, it was a very together, sort of bohemian, you know, laid back experience. And one of the things that he tried was he got some old Martin and Johnson animal pictures. and. Uh, when the uh, the black leopard came snarling, he turned to Kiyomachiko and said, this is how the woman acts in that particular section of the film. And then when the lion or whatever it was was roaring and pounding his chest, he turned to Mifune and said, this is you. So the director arranged for the, this bestiary that we see in the finished film. Also on the that DVD, you were talking about the music at one point, and then you mentioned that Kurosawa had a tin ear. I wonder if you could talk about that. Kurosawa's famous tin ear. Uh, he, like a lot of uh, cultured people during that generation, he loved music. But the music he knew was what you would find in a, an album which is titled World's Classics, The Ten Best Pieces of Music. That's what he knew, and that's what he loved, and that's what he wanted to use. If you pay attention to Kurosawa's music as it comes along, you'll find all sorts of classical references as to what, you know, what he liked and what he insisted upon. Uh, if you look at Ron, for example, you'll hear Mahler, because he had just discovered Mahler's first. And he insisted that his composer, Takemitsu, uh, do something like that. Uh, they very seldom rebelled. Takemitsu rebelled only once, and that was in Dodeskaden, when during the rushes, uh, he played the Bizet La Lesienne Suite. And, uh, Dum dum dum, da dum da dum da dum. You do something like that, and Takemitsu said, "You know, it's been done, and the composer is dead. So uh, you can't get him, but I'm leaving." And Kurosawa was not used to be treated like that, so he said, "No, no, 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 wait like that." And so Toru did, you know, exactly what he wanted. Uh, uh, other composers, Ikebe, when they were scoring Kagimusha, uh Kurosawa said, now this is what I want for this scene, and he played a well-beloved passage from the Pierre Gint music of Grieg. Uh, and said to the composer, something like that. So the composer did something like that, and when you look at the thing and you hear the music, the music goes he turned it upside down. And uh, so you sort of get away from the dictatorial demands of, of Kurosawa. In the case of Rashomon, however, <coughs> an extremely sensitive composer, 
uh, Fumio Hayasaka, who had scored many of the Kurosawa pictures and came to Rashomon. Rashomon said, I want something like And Hayakawa didn't know what to do. And he'd try to get further and further away, and he'd always be dragged back. So when you hear the score in the finished film, it almost ruins the film for us. Uh, you hear the bolero whining away in the background. When you listen to, or when you see Redbeard, for example, uh, that is supposed to be an imitation of Beethoven's Ninth, the final movement. And before he started filming, he assembled cast and all of the staff together and played the entire Ode to Joy for them so they'd get the proper idea. So this is, you know, the, the tin ear, really dumb way that he thought about music. Can you talk a little about how you scored your film? Atami Blues, the score is wonderful. Uh, Atami uh, Blues was scored after the fact. I had shown it without any music at all, and Takimitsu Toru said, you know, it needs music. And I said, yeah, I know it does, but what? He said, oh, you use these. And he gave me uh, uh, two tapes. And so I alternate the tapes. And I use it like, just like Ozu. Uh, that, that film's much inspired by Ozu. This is Atami Blues. Uh, so I, I bet it, it's wallpaper, but I use it like wallpaper. It's visible wallpaper. It depends on the film about how you're going to do it. Uh, life, you might have recognized, is the voice that you're listening to right now. I improvised that in the studio. Uh, I wanted something really perfumed and heavily romantic for dead youth, so I used Indian sitar music, uh, which was then mingled with natural things, you know, wind and things, waves and things like this, to give this sort of Wagnerian, it's a very Wagnerian film, it's about Liebestod. And I didn't want to use the Liebestod, but I wanted to give something that was this, you know, what, slippery, and this emotional, which is why the reason that, that I chose the uh, sitar. In the case of Five Philosophical Fables, I wanted something which was anodyne, in the same way that all early music for silent films is anodyne, nothing matches, doesn't fit. And it's not supposed to. It's supposed to be an oral sort of a background of what you're seeing. And I wanted something which was very delicate, very 19th century, very refined. And who could that be but Mendelssohn? The additions are all made by me on another piano. All right, I'm going to take some questions from the audience. Yeah, right there. I'll repeat the question so everyone can hear. Yeah. The incongruities that you experience in Japan, how do you think the, your films um, ref reflect those? Well, I don't think any Japanese could have made them. Uh, you know, it'd be like asking a fish to make a film about water. Uh, so you have to be outside whatever you're making a film of to make a coherent film. I mean, we're all, we're all you know, know what Kotari films are. And a lot of Japanese films are Kotari films. Uh, so I don't think anybody could have made the films except somebody outside society in one way or another. On the other hand, the films would not have achieved the celebrity that they have achieved in Japan if they had been made in any other manner. The very fact that they're being made from the outside, that this was an outside view of the Japanese, which is what they took it to be. I took it to be an outside view of the world. But it, for the Japanese audience, they read all sorts of things into this, and they snickered at criticism of the Japanese family when they ate the youngest son. And uh, so it was all taken very, very personally. Uh, and, I, and I think that the reason that it was accepted, I, I can't imagine what would have happened to a Japanese director who tried to do this, was the fact that I was an outsider, that I was looking in, that my criticism was therefore more amusing than telling, perhaps. 
Have you ever been charged with with exploiting Japanese culture or fetishizing it? Oh no, I don't think so. Uh, I might have been in other countries, but in the case of Japan, which has you know 200 years of, of white people exploiting them, uh, uh, I don't think that charge is ever made. It's always put on the other foot. I mean, people are very grateful for what you're doing, whether you're taken seriously or not. I think it's telling that all of my books on film history, I have four of them now, have never been translated into Japanese. But that could well be because of academic competitions, and the local teachers there don't want to have the kind of competition that, if I'm lucky, I uh, represent. Uh, My books that are sort of off that tangent, like the book on Kurosawa or the book on Ozu, these have been translated. But again, no Japanese sensei at that point had attempted this himself. So this would be one of the reasons. I've never been, what, uh, accused, I guess that's the word, of, of this kind of exploitation by anyone in the West. Uh, if I'd chosen another culture like French or something, I may have been. But in the case of Japan, I started so early on that I became identified with it. So I'm never criticized for that. Could you talk about how the five fables were dedicated to Buster Keaton? Uh, they were dedicated to the spirit of Buster Keaton because Buster Keaton, of course, as you well know, is absolutely unflappable. And uh, no matter what happens to him, we still have the same face. Uh, and in a way, this is sort of like Japan is. Japan is unflappable. Japan is effectless. It's very, it, it, it's, it's very hard. It, it's easy to make Japan hysterical on w- one level or another. But it's very, it, it, it's very difficult to make it you know, carry on the way that some countries do. At any rate, I, would, I wanted to suggest not so much that this was a Japanese attribute that they shared with Buster, as, as this was an aspiration that I wanted to share with Buster. I wanted to be as unflappable as Buster was. That's why I dedicated it to it. Is Ozu your favorite of the Japanese directors? Oh, absolutely, yeah. There's never been a film director like Ozu. There's never been a director who wedded simplicity with profundity to the way, and one leaning on the other that Ozu does, and, and he's the master carpenter, uh, the way that he connects his, his scenes. He's a master editor of those scenes, the way he leads time and space just to, you know, to, to, to make the effects that he wants. I think he's probably one of the finest filmmakers has ever made, uh, simply because he understands the nature of film so well, it's my opinion. Can you talk a little bit about what he was like in person? Uh, I knew Kurosawa quite well, uh, and I'd go to the, you know, to the studio to watch him work sometimes. Uh, Ozu, he was a different kind of person. One did not presume. I mean, Kurosawa was a tyrant, and you know, get mad and, and, and threaten people, but he, he, he was he was approachable. And Ozu never did anything like that, but in a way, he was unapproachable. Uh, he knew exactly what he was going to do when he came to the set. He'd already made up his mind about everything. He'd, he'd, he'd take the actors aside and said, move your finger two inches to the left and then turn your head very slightly and that's the performance I want and don't do anything else. I only watched him work once. I watched him do the, 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 the there's part of an in scene, scene in a Japanese inn in Akibiori, which I think is early autumn. and. Uh, it was absolutely like watching an architect who'd already made the blueprint. And that's, now we've done this, and now we're going to do this, now next scene, now we're going to do this and that. And any, any volition, any emotion on the part of the actors was uh, severely uh, dampened. 
I wasn't there when this happened, but in Tokyo's story, there's a famous scene where Sugimura Harako, who is a very famous stage actress and certainly has her own persona in everything she does, she had a scene on the telephone where they're deciding what to do about Mama and Papa, and she has a fan, or she has this round fan, and she's looking at the fan as she's saying, Ja kabuki ka dokuiko ka ja nantoka. And do you notice very small dialogue? 72 times he took this. And I don't know what he was searching for, but I do know the reason. He wanted to destroy her, her idea of it. He wanted to destroy her persona. He wanted her to become the person. And finally, being dead tired in his sheer desperation, she became that famous actress, though she was. She stopped being an actress. The question is, um, with Bresson compared to Ozu, the actors uh, were very thoroughly rehearsed. Do you think that's... that's well, I, I, uh, I think you'd be more partial to Kurosawa's way, for example. His way, they sit around having readings first, then they have uh, full rehearsals. They had something like three months of rehearsals for the lower depths, uh, with the camera gliding around, everybody in full costume and makeup. And, and during the rehearsals is where he sort of formulates them. He lets the actor do what the actor wants to do. And then he says, you know, it's very good, but don't you think you could move it a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right? Let's try it again. And he does this very, very gently. I mean, he who loses his temper and hits people, nonetheless, when it comes to this, he, he did very, very gentle, and he molds his people. I remember once Kagawa Kyoko told me that when a uh, climactic scene in The Bad Sleep Well, uh, where she's supposed to cry, and they had uh, rehearsals, and she, you know, got uh, the, the crying mode on, and did not cry. And then he said, "Okay, we're going to take it now, and you're going to cry." And she did. <laughs> so the way this seems to work, uh, different directors use different methods. A lot of uh, directors spoil their films uh, by not directing the actors. It's considered, as indeed uh, perhaps you yourself would consider it, rude to inter interrupt another person's interpretation or their work or to take away what creative value they themselves have. But when those people don't have very much, then they probably need something. And nonetheless, we do have a number of directors in Japan who will simply let the actor do what he wants to do. Oh, that's a take. Uh, such a director is uh, Shinoda, who, whose films have many, many virtues, but the acting certainly isn't among them. You. You, you, you notice that the acting is, is really not very good. Uh, there are other directors. Teshigahara is very much like that. He will, he will do everything about the film, but when it comes to the acting, he won't. I remember, and I know this from experience. I don't know if you've seen a film called uh, mm, Rikyu. Has anybody seen Rikyu? It's a Teshigahara film, and uh, it's uh, about 16th century. And it is uh, about the warlord Hideyoshi uh, browbeating his tea master, Rikyu, and eventually the poor man has to commit suicide, and that's the story. And he had, playing the two leads, he had very, very famous people. And playing Hideyoshi, he had uh, Yamazaki Shitomu, who can put in a tremendous performance when he is controlled, as in High and Low, where he plays the criminal. Uh, but when he's not controlled, he's something else. And I know about this because I was playing, this is my, 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 not my acting debut actually, but whatever the opposite of debut is, I never made another film after this, uh, I was the head of the Portuguese mission. And speaking Portuguese, a line of Portuguese, which is a, 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 like among the many languages I don't know. And uh, 
the rehearsal went okay, but came came the first take, and I was so advanced upon so heavily by Yamazaki playing the warlord that I dropped my 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 surplus. I lost my rosary. I my hat came off. Uh, and uh, afterwards, the man who played Riku said, "You know." I didn't realize you could play that role with such a comic flair. You're really quite good. <laughs> comic, comic. I had thought that I was being a wily Jesuit, you know? Uh, but the point is that Hiroshi allowed this, and he allowed the hamminess of that particular actor to come through. It wasn't that he was attacking me. He wasn't. He was just doing his part. But there was no control. And when there's no control on a spontaneous event like acting, then you've got to watch out. I don't know whether you have to be as rigid, let's say, as Ozu was, but you certainly can't be as light as Teshihara is, was and get the results. So you're quite right as to be questioned, but the answer seems to lie in the middle there someplace. Yeah, right here. The question is about Mikio Naruse uh, and his, his acting, or his, the way he was with actors. Uh, the act, so much that actors didn't like really very much to act with him. Uh, Nakadai, Tatsuya, told me once that he, he plays the bartender and when a woman ascends the stairs. And he said that it was the worst experience in his life because he was brand new and he was trying to do what the director wanted and the director wouldn't tell him. Uh, he'd say, you know, how's that? And the director would say, no, no good. Why is it no good? No answer. Uh, Takamine Hideko also talked about him never giving any kind of, simply make them doing it over and over and over again until, by accident almost, they would uh, satisfy him. I think it had the effect that Uzu wanted in erasing personality. This is certainly what Bresson wants. Uh, Bresson doesn't even call them actors. He calls them models, like people he tries clothes on, you know? Uh, because he does not want the, the tinge of, of, of a personality to poison this conception that he has. I think they all share this. Naruse may really not have known what he wanted, too. That's always possible, that the director has no idea and he simply waits till something turns up that he likes. But since Naruse thought about you know, everything pretty carefully, I would imagine this is part of his technique. He never talked to anybody. He always ate alone in the studio uh, commissary. When he, get married, when he got married the first time back in the 30s, everybody was, uh, you know, astonished. How did he even get to know anybody? Did he talk to her first, sort of thing? On that, on that same um, idea, you said at one point um, about your writing that if you involve your feelings, you are lost. And you also called feelings ideas whose time has not yet come. So this idea of feelings as not really having a place in this professional work. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Well, that explains why I like Ozu so much, doesn't it? Uh, I believe in control. Uh, and I think that when you let your emotions rampage, uh, you lose something. You pay for it. But this is a personal idea. The reason I feel this way is I don't believe in the concept of the emotions as such. The emotion presumably... First, I don't believe in the dichotic idea of the intellect on one hand and emotions on the other. I don't believe in Apollo on one side and Dionysus on the other. I don't believe any longer in things that come in pairs of twos. Uh, one of the things that Japan had taught me is that between black and white there is this area called gray. And we use it as though, you know, we never want to go there and never want to see that. But actually, that's the most fruitful. And that is the, 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 you know, the clearest to the reality that we live in every day. It's the closest to the truth, to the extent that there is any. 
And so uh, feeling this way, it's typical of me to make statements like that. How did you find the actors for your film? Uh, when you make films like mine, you, you, you don't have any, they, they don't cost very much money, but you try to keep them as cheap as you can. And uh, in this case, I don't think any of these films cost more than what would now be $400 or $500 or something. Uh, so they're very cheap to make. Well, one of the reasons you make them cheap is the way you proceed to film. And so far as actors go, I only use my friends, and I never pay them. Uh, the actors in the last film were professionals. Uh, they were part of a, a, a mime group, and the... Uh, and, and they worked wonderfully together. I saw them in Yokohama and fell in love with them. I said, I've got to do something with these wonderful people. And indeed, they are wonderful. I didn't direct them. I mean, this is, all of their reactions are things they thought of, and I just sat back and was grateful. Uh, and the, it, 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 it depends, you know, case by case. For example, at Tommy Blues, the, the girl was professional. She was, uh, she later became rather famous as a chanteuse. She first wanted to do the Kurt Weill, Seven Deadly Sins, for example. Uh, and she was quite young. She was not famous then yet. But she was sort of pliable. She hadn't turned into an actress at that point. So she was, uh, and she could be modulated. Uh, the uh, guy who played the guy was uh, an amateur, brand new, and I picked him because he was my friend. And uh, it wasn't a question of getting him down. It was a question of getting him up. But since he's, you know, such a son of a bitch anyway in the film, it, it, it was easy to get a kind of coldness, a kind of callow coldness out of him because it was there. And so I was able in that sense to create the things. But the people in Dead Youth are not people at all. This is psychodrama. Uh, they're not supposed to be people. They don't have any personalities or anything. So I used all my friends and didn't even, you know, I used still pictures. I used outtakes. I used... A lot of things. I never told them, you know, what you're supposed to be feeling or anything. I simply did like Ozai said, now you move your hand two inches, and then you pick that up. So it sort of depends. But the main thing about them is that they're all free. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.